to talk about information warfare, but like, let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> This is Pino and Policy. I'm today's host, Sophia Freuden, editor in chief of Arbitrary, Pino and Policy's parent publication. Say that five times fast. <laughs> I'm here with Kenzie Seifert and Hannah Lazatter. Would you two care to introduce yourselves? Sure. I'm Kenzie, and I'm a contributor at Arbitrary and also a master's student in Russian and Eurasian studies at Harvard's Davis Center. And I'm Hannah. I am the director of networking at Arbitrary, and I am an independent paralegal. And a law school hopeful. All right. Um, before we begin our d- discussion, I want to introduce our listeners to what we're talking about today, which should come as a total shock because it's not in the news at all. Uh, we're going to discuss the 440-page-long Mueller report that was released, uh, I believe, sometime last week, uh, discussing, of course, uh, the investigation into alleged coordination and or collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government in the 2016 presidential elections. So this is a really broad topic, and before we started recording, uh, we kind of struggled with like how we were going to frame this discussion, because there's literally an infinite number of ways you can tackle this subject. But we divided the subject into sort of four broad categories that I think our listeners would like to, to um, hear about. And the first one, and this is, you know something that is sort of a broad approach to everything is sort of the aspect of criminal conduct versus counterintelligence. Well, first of all, what does that mean? Like, why is it important that there's a distinction between a criminal investigation and a counterintelligence investigation? That's a good question. I think... Like, how does DOJ work? Like, not everyone... No, Department of Justice, by the way. Yeah. It's all good. The uh, Department of Justice over oversees the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Is that right? The FBI? Yeah. yeah. The Federal Bureau of Investigation. That's a familiar one. Uh-huh. Um, and they also work with the IC, otherwise known as the Intelligence Community, which obviously consists of the NSA, the CIA, a number of other organizations that deal with counterintelligence, um, counterterrorism. Or CI. Or the CI. Of IC. Oh, what's CI? CI is counterintelligence. Oh, yeah. All of the acronyms. <laughs> Take a shot every time we mention a weird acronym. <laughs> okay. Um, so that's that's what the DOJ does in part. That's sort of what the FBI does. The FBI, as opposed to other members of like sort of the intelligence community and or CI, counterintelligence community, focuses more on domestic stuff, like stuff related to the interior of the United States, whereas the CIA and maybe some other organizations focus on foreign policy. Um but delineating between like criminal conduct and counterintelligence conduct, I think it really it's easy for people to understand what criminal conduct is because it's sort of like, oh, you broke the law, that's criminal. But counterintelligence is also something that's like really weird and constantly evolving, especially in the 21st century where we have all these newfangled technologies that allow people to do all sorts of counterintelligence ops that, you know, right, previously haven't existed. So I think it's safe to say that the Mueller report was focused on counterintelligence then, or in, like, a criminal counterintelligence? So it was definitely, the the Mueller report, actually, that, that was released, what we have of it, focuses just on the criminal aspect. Yeah. Um, it doesn't touch on the, on the counterintelligence aspect at all. Or if it does, it's been redacted. Or if it does, it's been redacted, and we just don't know. But, like... Most, from what I understand, the counterintelligence 
aspect of the investigation remains under the purview of the FBI um, because that deals with what kind of risk a person is to national security, which is kind of nebulous and difficult to define. And being that it seems like even criminal conduct is difficult to define here, that was what took priority in this report, as I understand it. Does anyone else want to push back on that? No, I I think, well, I am in agreement, but I think that's an important distinction to make because the the emphasis on quote-unquote collusion um, that we have been speculating about pre-release of the report makes it feel very foreign policy-focused, which is uh, Uh why it feels like it could easily go in the counterintelligence direction, but it's important to note that it's criminal-focused. Yeah. I will also say regarding... Wait, and... We can put a pin on the main subject for just, like, two seconds. Collusion, and this has been all over. Hannah was talking about it with me earlier today, but it's been all over the news as well. Like, the whole uh, narrative collusion, the right, the reason why we're saying that word is because Donald Trump made that the issue, right? Right, and that is not, it doesn't actually have a legal definition, necessarily. It's, what was, what was the uh, comparison? Coordination, uh, or? It was collusion, or... Conspiracy e or yeah, something? Was there was it? a lot of c words thrown around. So there was coordination, which is like the official word that gets discussed. The definition of which, per the report, is one second here. I had it written down. Oh yeah, coordination per the report is defined as um, requiring an agreement, tacit or expressed, between the Trump campaign and the Russian government on election interference, which is really specific because it relates to not only an agreement sort of an affirmative between two sides where one side does one thing, gets acknowledged by another, and then is acted upon by the other side and vice versa, Um, tacit or expressed, so it can be implied or it can be explicit, between the Trump campaign, so a specific organization that existed during a specific period of time, and the Russian government, not just like freelance Russian agents, on election interference and no other kind of interference or activity. So it's, Mm -hmm. like, so specific, right? And that's, like, what they were trying to test. Like, did this occur between the Trump campaign and and the Russian government? Right, which is, as was mentioned in a a Vox article published on April 19th, the difference between collusion and conspiracy. As they mentioned, collusion has no legal definition and is not a federal crime, but conspiracy is. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of what was focused on, as you just defined. Yeah. Where were we? Oh, yeah. Okay, so putting, taking the pin out of the main subject and going back to it, no longer talking about, like, collusion versus conspiracy versus coordination. Um, the aspect of counterintelligence with this, I mean, so there are certain things in the report that when, when you look at the redactions themselves, because it, it explicitly says, like, why, why any given thing is being redacted. There's four reasons of inv- uh, redactions, two of which are, I think, like, pretty pertinent, potentially, to counterintelligence. One is called harm to ongoing matter, so, like, harm, harm to an ongoing investigation of some kind. The other uh, discusses redaction for investigative techniques, so techniques that use for collecting information. Maybe it's counterintelligence information. Maybe it's just, like, oh. general, like, FBI. Things they don't want you to know. That they can do yeah. or that they do do actively or are doing right now as we speak. That makes um, sense. So, like, we don't know what we don't know. <laughs> you don't say. Yeah, we don't know what we don't know. In a classic twist of a Donald Rumsfeld <laughs> statement, uh, in a classic statement from him, you know, we can't tell what's behind the redacted report. Maybe you and I and, and, and whomever else will never see the unredacted version because 
you know, I, I don't at least clear, currently have an active security clearance anymore. <laughs> and I uh, don't think Kenzie's security clearance is active anymore, and I don't think Hannah's ever had one. I so have, I, have, I have not. It's interesting, also, just as a, a, a side note, this page that Sophia has that is completely redacted. It says, the term troll refers to internet users, in this context, paid operatives, who post inflammatory or otherwise disruptive content on social media or other websites. Yeah, it's a hysterical page. Like, I highly recommend anyone who hasn't had the chance to at least read part of the report itself to actually read it, because I can tell the person who redacted this, having redacted many things in my in my very short legal career, the person who redacted this had a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> So we have this page here, as Hannah's described, that's like entirely redacted. The whole thing is black, and at the bottom there's just this tiny footnote that has the definition for a troll on it. And I just, <laughs> you scroll through it and you find stuff like that. Another thing that I found, which was like hysterical and really made me chuckle, was that at one point in time the Internet Research Agency, which is the primary agency used by the Russian government to do the sort of um, social media information ops that they did, uh, this IRA, the Inf Inf Internet Research Agency, purchased over... $100,000 of Facebook ads, and also recruited moderators of conservative social media groups to promote IRA-generated contact, as well as recruit individuals to perform political acts, such as walking around New York City dressed up as Santa Claus with a Trump mask. <laughs> That's a choice. Like, you just, as I'm, I'm, I'm saying to both of you and to whoever is listening, please just go read it. Like, I don't care if it's only 50 pages. I plan to read it. That's also it's, just the most Russian thing I've ever heard, where it just, like, violently doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, I, and I was trying to think about it in, like, the and Russian equivalent. it's not supposed to be harmful. Like, I just don't understand. Well, as a child, I would not be, like, if they're trying to be appealing by putting a, ma a, Trump, a Donald Trump mask on a Santa Claus, like, as a child, I'd be terrified by that, you know? Yeah, um, and also just like thinking about it in the a Russian equivalent. So in, in Russian culture, they don't have Santa Claus. They have Didmaros, like Grandfather Frost. And I'm just like trying to imagine like a Didmaros walking around with like Putin's face on and just like seeing like how I don't think Russians would respond to that positively either. I think all Donald Trump masks were ruined for me by that one season of American Horror Story. I haven't seen it. Oh, yeah. Cults. Yeah. Actually, surprisingly good commentary, and I'll I'll leave my comments at that for where American <laughs> Horror Story is is concerned. I I liked it also. Anyway, yeah. moving on, moving on. Um, like we've been hearing a lot in the news about impeachment recently, and what is impeachable, and how does that relate to criminal conduct? Something that we were discussing earlier. Um, I I wrote down in my notebook what offenses are considered impeachable. Uh, and the, the, the vague definition that I was able to find was high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, but that definition still seems to be very vague, and it doesn't seem to be necessarily defined at all until Congress decides to give it a definition. Yeah. So then let's move on to that second bucket of, like, what does it mean? Do, are the consequences of this bringing criminal charges, or is it impeachment? What's the difference in... What does it look like right. moving forward? Right. Um, I think the best place to start is at the beginning, uh, or rather in the past. So in the past, there's been two impeachments um, conducted by the United States Congress. Uh, Hannah, do you want to go into a little bit of detail about what those impeachments were? Sure. First, we had Andrew Johnson. He was impeached because he violated the Tenure of Office Act, 
Um, which I'm still a little fuzzy on what all that had to do with, but something about firing somebody that was previously appointed by Lincoln, who he took over for after Lincoln was assassinated, seems relatively tame compared to what's going on these days. But that was uh, also in the context of construction, uh, reconstruction era politics, which were really messy. And to be talked about perhaps in another episode. Yeah. Uh, Our second and final, unless the future shows otherwise, was Bill Clinton, who was impeached for perjuring himself and for obstruction of justice uh, in covering up his affair with Monica Lewinsky. Um, Also very different in nature. Uh, The obstruction of justice topic has come up, of course, but as, as we know from the report... It has not been explicitly, of course, Mueller did not choose to indict upon that. It was interesting to find out that there was a relative parallel in reports. The Star report under Clinton, I guess it would be the, the past equivalent to the Mueller report of today. Mm-hmm. Um, but that report did explicit, explicitly mention impeachment and, of course, obstruction of justice, because that was the question at the time. Uh, this time it was collusion conspiracy coordination <laughs> coordination and obstruction of justice <laughs> yeah but uh interestingly though both were impeached the senate has never convicted so no one has been removed from office after being impeached yeah um i will say so regarding the coordination and collusion matter again if you go back and read the report like The investigation says that they were not able to find evidence of coordination in the in the way that they were. Well, hang on. It's not that they didn't find evidence. It's that they didn't like right. They didn't fulfill like the burden of proof that they needed to indict. Let me look. That was like a whole thing, right? That was that was the obstruction of justice. I thought, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. So the report itself here. I actually have a copy of it pulled up on my computer. I need to like go to the beginning. I'm pretty sure it says that they were not, you know, they were not able to find evidence of coordination. And then regarding obstruction of justice, it, they were not able to decide one way or another what had happened. Okay. Um, um, Mueller, as noted in this New York Times article from the 22nd regarding Pelosi's stance, he, and I quote, declined to indict the president or recommend impeachment because he said legal and factual constraints prevented him from reaching a traditional judgment about whether Mr. Trump's action amounted to obstruction of justice, unquote. Um, I thought that was interesting, and I'm curious. I would love to know more details about those legal and factual constraints. Uh, one of which is the, the precedent that the Department of Justice shouldn't indict a sitting president because it, imp- right. it impedes the ability of the executive branch and the presidency to function to fulfill the duties granted by the Constitution. Right. And that, to a certain extent, makes makes sense to me. Like, I think it's kind of a, a BS argument. But to me, like, from, like, just, like, a political st- stability standpoint, the president is responsible for so much stuff, especially nowadays, especially, you know, with foreign policy and whatever else. If we don't have a president in the office that's able to do his or her job effectively. And, like, the general structure of the government is then just disrupted. That's, like... Yeah. So I understand why that precedent exists. I think it's kind of a cop-out for Mueller to be like, oh, because of this, I'm not going to say anything about what we should do and just leave it up to Congress. In terms that can be, like, misconstrued according to partisan lines, right? The, the one way I've had this entire 
report like summarized for me in a way that makes a lot of sense and is also kind of like bleak is that it's a it's a giant Rorschach test, right? Like that ink block test that they used uh-huh. to give people in psychiatrist's office office. It is what you make of it. If you wanna see a criminal wrongdoing, you can. If you wanna see a total exoneration, you can. Yeah. I think the pretty you know, I and I have my own biases, but I think the, the the details included in the report are pretty damning, even though I'm only fifty pages in. And that to me is wild. Right? How can you read in, read all the first 50 pages and walk away thinking, oh, this is a total exoneration? Yeah. And another quote from this article by Mr. Fondas uh, at the New York Times, nothing in the Constitution says a crime must have occurred to warrant impeachment. Rather, it is up to any given Congress to determine what constitutes a high crime and misdemeanor. And in the past, non-criminal acts have been so defined. Yeah. Um, so I did find the part in the report where it discusses what it found in regards to coordination and or conspiracy and or collusion between the Trump campaign. It said the investigation identified numerous links between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. Although the investigation established that the gov- Russian government perceived it would benefit from a Trump presidency and work to secure that outcome and that the campaign expected it would benefit electorally from information stolen and released through Russian efforts. The investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. So, that's what it said about that particular matter. Again, there are some details that are crazy that I, I really implore everyone to go check out, one of which I just like wrote down a couple of random ones that stood out to me. At one point in time, Trump repeatedly was asking people associated with his campaign to find the deleted emails, referring to the emails deleted by Hillary Clinton's private server. Um, The day we stop talking about those emails, by the way, will be a welcome day. Uh, Apparently, uh, Michael Flynn, his now-fired former national security advisor, contacted multiple people to try and fulfill this this request. Uh, There were two people that Flynn was in contact with to help him with this. One was uh, Barbara Ledeen, who was a longtime Senate staffer, and Peter Smith, an investment uh, advisor who was also active in in GOP politics at the time. They both had various or claimed to have various connections with different foreign governments. Ledeen, the, the former Senate staffer, at one point in time said that she thought that Russian, Chinese, and Iranian intelligence services could reassemble the server and find those emails. Peter Smith separately said that he had contacts with Russia, or contacts with hackers affiliated with Russia, though the office, referring to the office of the special counsel, could never find any such contact between Peter Smith and said Russians. Later, Eric Prince, who was a friend of, uh, I think he was a friend, uh, oh no, Eric Prince was an associate of Steve Bannon, tried to authenticate the emails that Ledeen found that were allegedly Hillary Clinton's emails with money that he provided. Like, there's all of these connections back to the Trump campaign about potential foreign collusion, coordination, conspiracy, all of which were kind of, like, befuddled by incompetence and just, like, bad luck. But, like, it's so bad. Like, that's just one part of it. That's one paragraph in this 448 thing where these people are like, oh, we should, you know deal with Russia to try and find those emails. Or the fact that the DNC server, or uh, Hillary Clinton's personal office was hacked within five hours after Trump publicly said, like, that Russia should go find those emails. Now that absolutely was wild to me. I mean, not that the rest of it isn't, but... Like, within five hours. Yeah, that's some pretty quick response stuff. But it seems so, like, what do we, what do we take from this? Because it seems so clear and awful. 
clear and awful to people who maybe don't like the president, aren't loyal to him or to the GOP. There's you know? something in the water. Lindsey Graham today on Twitter said that the Mueller report was basically a total exoneration of Donald Trump. Lindsey Graham, who, by the way, is supposed to be one of the quote-unquote better Republicans, and he's a senator, by the way, part of the chamber that's supposed to convict any impeachment articles put forth by the House of Representatives. Well, I mean, as we earlier mentioned, the Senate has never convicted Ever. Oh, and they certainly won't convict this. You know, Kamala, Kamala Harris had a CNN town hall yesterday where she actively called for the impeachment of Donald Trump. But she's like, you know, I've worked in the Senate for two years now and there's no way in hell that they're going to convict. Like, not in 2019, not with the Congress that we have set up. I don't think, personally, I think that we should still try. You know, what does it look like? What does it mean if, if the Democrats or if the House of Representatives just rolls over? And that could actually tie into our third bucket of, of conversations is what does this mean for, for domestic politics, right? What, what would impeachment, what does all of this mean for, for things happening on the ground in America? Sure. So I, I mean, for myself, I'm not sure how I feel about the impeachment conversation so far. I think that if, if Democrats do push for it, um, ultimately, it's going to have to be a very principled take, and I mean that in a very specific way. I think that what Nancy Pelosi accomplished in, uh, we've already referenced this New York Times article, what she is pushing for in having these these figures come and, and give testimony before Congress, it gives it, there was, there was something about it get, having sort of the decorum of being impeachment proceedings without the actual name, and I think that there's there's some merit to that strategy of censure. We can sorry censure. Is that what you're thinking of, or censor? No, that was a that was a move. Uh, Representative Bonamici and someone else had um, said that censure is a is a possible step that that Congress could take. But I'm talking specifically about Nancy Pelosi as as the House Majority Leader, not pushing specifically for impeachment proceedings, but in having Attorney General Barr, Trump's personal attorney, and and uh, and, and Mueller. Mueller come in and testify uh, before Congress. Uh, this is the tracking, right? That this is what she's suggested? Oh, I haven't read that article personally. Yeah. No, I, oh, I, know, okay, okay. I know what you're talking about. In fact, I might be able to find the paragraph. Hold on. Yeah, well, what I think about that is that I don't think that we can let this go as is. Um, I don't think that that's right personally, but I think that politically there's a difficult line to walk here of unless it's perceived by the American people to be very above board and very principled, we're going to fall into even more divisive politicking, which I don't think is good for for the American public and for American institutions. That's my point. That is... No, you go first, Hannah. It sounds like exactly what you're talking about, about Pelosi being worried about moving too quickly could do exactly that. Right. I will say that for what it's worth, I I think it's a very slim majority, but a, a, a slim majority of Americans now support impeachment of the... Sure. Or either impeachment or I think just like sort of like a... They think that what they think that Donald Trump did something terribly wrong, right? Like they disapprove right. of, of the findings of the Mueller report. So that's one thing to consider. It's also worth noting that after the the report was was published, and this is also keeping in mind that Barr, you know, 
to give him credit, did a wonderful job of trying to spin a, a good picture for the president. This is also after Barr's little press conference that he had. Trump's approval rating dropped to... It's, it's lowest 39% of, yeah, or something like that, lowest, right? Lowest approval rating since August of 2017, which 2017. I think is maybe it's all-time that low. Was, that was after the Charlottesville... Um, Correct. Yeah, after that whole debacle where Donald Trump basically said that being racist is okay. Like, that's obviously not exactly verbatim what he said, That's but that's more or less what he implied, right? Mm-hmm. So, Which is like, why his approval ratings dropped so, so low. Yeah. yeah, in addition to, that was sort of when the, the Mueller thing started kicking up dust, and there was the whole question of Jared Kushner and the Magnitsky Act and, like, all of this other stuff going down that summer as well. The Magnitsky Act being a set of sanctions levied against the Russian government, just yeah. for our listeners who aren't in the know. Yeah. Some people will tell you it's just about adoption. I will tell you that that's a disinformatia <laughs> op. <laughs> and for those not familiar, disinformatia is like the new hot buzzword in sort of like information war slash cyber warfare. It's a Russian word meaning like disinformation, like intentionally fake news to, to obscure or hide certain facts propaganda yeah propaganda is one way of thinking about it but propaganda is usually to promote like a positive like you should support the american government because whatever whereas disinformatia is meant to sow discord maybe or just uh, obfuscate facts that's interesting so speaking of disinformatia and um i i don't want to talk about information like information warfare but like Let's talk about it. <laughs> I am, I'm literally on, on my way to go to graduate school to study this subject, so I'm all right. about it, but it's, it's but messy. It is. I, I, I do want to bring up the, the Internet Research Agency and, and this whole social media campaign and this, this attempt to, to influence the American public through social media, and I just want to allow me to quickly climb up onto my soapbox and yeah. say that, you know... I mean, the, the Mueller report has shown that, that influence is, is sort of inconclusive and, and no one, the blame doesn't lie with, can't be conclusively tied to, to the Trump campaign. But I do want to say that, you know, as much as I hold Russia accountable for its government action in the international space. I also think that the American electorate is is currently vulnerable to online influence. And I I don't know what that means in a globalized world. You know, like we're all on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. What does influence by a foreign government mean in, in today's world? And I think that part of the onus for shoring up our protections of ourselves is on us to be educating ourselves and differentiating between like real news and fake news. Education just it has to be reimagined as being part of the national security effort in a new way now because of this. And I don't think that that's being talked about enough. Yeah. So I'll climb down off my soapbox and you can give me your okay. impressions. Hannah, Hannah also has a soapbox, I think, to climb on top of. Just a, <laughs> I think it's still Kenzie's soapbox, but uh, I'll climb on it now. <laughs> it's a very crowded soapbox. Um, it's a nice it, view from up here. <laughs> That uh, kind of like makes me circle back again to redacted page eighteen, where they define troll at the bottom. Because um, uh-huh. I mean, living in the information age as we do, we all heard of trolls. In fact, there's like a little picture of one that you've probably seen. But um, in this particular context, they define a troll as a paid operative 
internet uh-huh. user posting inflammatory or otherwise disruptive content. And that is, uh, I mean, in the sense of, like, being in high school and there being trolls, like, that's one thing. But when it comes to, like, governments interacting with each other, like, this is, of course, I mean, as is a lot of this, something that's never happened before because of information technology. And uh, I think dealing with things like trolls and uh, what that means for foreign and domestic policy is, like, uncharted territory. Yeah. You guys are going to, or at least Kenzie's probably going to roll her eyes and sigh, but also appreciate what I'm about to say. So this whole you need to educate your public and to protect it against the disinformatia, specifically from Russia thing. There's been a number of countries that have actually mastered that and are really good at it that we should maybe follow suit. One is Finland. The Baltic states are also really good examples. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, because they're right on the Russian border, right? All three of those countries share a border with Russia, are part of the former Soviet Union. And fall within Russia's sphere of influence, despite the fact that uh, all three Baltic states and Finland are all members of the EU. Yeah, and I believe all four of them are members of NATO as well. I could be wrong on that, and I'm not going to Google it now. So if I'm wrong, listeners, please call me out on Twitter. Okay, so despite the fact that all of these countries are, are within the EU and, and most likely NATO, they, they fall prey to Russian disinformation operations and have for the last, like, 70 years. Russian slash Soviet, I should say. Um, And Finland especially is known just in general for having one of the best education systems in the world, but also, like, in regards to Russia and Russian foreign policy, they are really good at teaching critical thinking uh, skills that are necessary for differentiating between real news and fake news. A A lot of Finns speak Russian as a second language, so that's helpful in in understanding sort of the Russian world, right? Um, These are all cues that we can take as a nation, but that's a long-term solution, right? That's going to take at least 10, if not 15 to 20 years to really implement. Like, what do we do in the short run? It's an important question, but, you know, I also just, my personal standpoint is we can't just think about the short run, and we like to do that a lot. Yeah. Well, to kind of wrap up the conversation, uh, is the Mueller report real news or fake news? Ready, set, go, Sophia. Real news? I mean, I put faith in what they're researching. I mean, the president certainly is saying that it's not. (laughs) The president is also in the process of potentially getting his former officials, like, subpoenaed and held in contempt by the United States government. So I think that the president is holding on to to it being real news insofar as he sees it as an exoneration of himself and his cohort. Yeah, he says that, but then he also says stuff like, you know, Mueller is just like a hellhound sent from the Democrats and and whatever that, like, whatever else, you know? Oh, Sophia, you have to take him seriously, not literally. Oh. (laughs) Uh, This is such a struggle. It's such a struggle. Like, there's no logic. There's no reason. Like, whatever he said five minutes ago doesn't apply, and you just have to listen to him in the now and then forget it in two minutes because it's not going to make sense. But to go back to your question, Hannah, it's absolutely, I mean, it's real news, and I feel really strongly about this, and I think that this has been something that has been a huge struggle in the States since the election, is just, it's, is trust in not just our institutions, but also in, in our civil servants, and I think that this is a, this is a team that is working extremely, I have faith in, in them working extremely hard to not appear to be partisan, to present things in as neutral and accurate a manner as they can 
Um, I don't think it's overblown and, um, and controversial opinion. I don't think it's underblown either. I think that there's a reason that Mueller didn't decide to come out and indict. And I'm not mad at his decision to sort of shift it on to Congress, which Congress represents the will of the people. I mean, that's our, our representative body. Um, and I think that that's, that's an okay thing to do. And that's, that's pretty, I think that that's a good step. I concur. In fact, I think that Mueller's nod to Congress to take it from here is not only respectable, but very important because he is now putting into action our system of checks and balances. And that's exactly what he should be doing. Yeah. I agree with you. I hope you guys are both right. I hope that the checks and balances work. Whether it will or not, I don't know. And I definitely think that something should be done. Um, To wrap that up, To our listeners, you have a bit of homework. You are going to go read the Mueller report. Not all of it, unless you want to, but I recommend flipping open, literally just flipping open to a random page or maybe starting at the beginning, or if you really want to, go to page 394 and start reading from there (laughs) and just just read a couple pages. And for extra credit, memorize all of the NATO member states. Yeah. All of the NATO member states. Wrong about NATO and EU member states, and also take a drink if you picked up on the Harry Potter reference. (laughs) Yes, thank you, thank you. All right, Uh, thank you two so much for joining me. Um, We will see each other, or at least some of us will see each other uh, on this podcast again in coming days. Uh, So stay stay tuned. Feel free to follow Arbiter on arbiter.org on Twitter, or subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already yet. And uh, also, a big thank you to our sound editor staff who edits all of our podcasts and deals with all of our weird ums and ands and swear words. So, thank you. Thank you, Steph. Thank you, Steph. Okay. All right. Hit the stop button.